This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Make sure you subscribe to get brand new episodes delivered to your podcast feed every Thursday. And if you'd like to, you can also leave us a rating and a review. This week, we're meeting one of the richest women of the 1200s. Her married name was Isabella de Fortibus, also known as de Fors, and she lived for 56 years between 1237 and 1293. As a powerful medieval noblewoman who became a wealthy young widow and heiress, she was pursued by many ambitious suitors looking to acquire her wealth and lands while she lived at Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight. And it's here where we begin our story with our guests, Senior Properties Curator Sam Stones and Documentation Officer Dr Theron Wellstead. Hello. Hello. For people who aren't familiar with English geography, Theron, can you remind us where the Isle of Wight is and also how Carisbrook Castle is situated within the island? Absolutely. So the Isle of Wight is roughly a, a diamond-shaped island that sits off the south coast, off the mainland, by a few miles. Due to its position over the centuries, it's been used as quite, seen as quite an important strategic piece of land protecting the ports of Southampton Portsmouth to the north. So this includes things like um, Henry VIII's fort of Yarmouth Castle with its arrowhead bastion. But also it's been a residence to many important figures, including Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who had one of their principal residences of its Osborne House on the north coast. But in the 13th century, it was a residence of Isabella de Fortibus, whose primary residence was Carisbrook Castle. Then the castle sits almost splat bang in the middle of the island, just to the west. It commands quite a view as it is built on a line of chalk downs that form the backbone of the island with views from miles to the north, south, east and west. Ah, so it's quite high up then. Can you describe how Carisbrook Castle would have looked in Isabella's time in the 1200s? So when Carisbrook came to her hands, the medieval castle had been standing for quite some time. There had been a ringwork that had been built in the corner of an 11th century enclosure fort in the early Norman period. But this was soon overtaken by an earthwork Mott and Bailey Castle. And the earthworks would have been originally crowned by a sturdy palisade. But in turn, this had been updated and upgraded, if you like, in the reign of King Stephen by a guy called Baldwin de Redvers, Isabella's great-great-grandfather. And is in a, in a document of, uh, called the Guest of Stefani, is described as very finely built of stone and strongly fortified. And this relates to most of the curtain walls which are still standing around the castle today. Once you're through the rectangular stone gatehouse, um, if you were travelling in that period, you would have seen a great hall, kitchen, as well as many other services, a chapel and accommodations for the different ranks of the lordly household, as well as many other services as well. So just listening to what Theron was saying there, how does the 13th century description that he's given, how does that compare to what visitors see today? Well, I think put quite simply, there's much about the 13th century castle that is still recognisable. So Isabella constructed a huge, she she built so much at Carisbrook that we often call it Isabella's castle. Some of that is now lost. Some of it is ruined. Some of it is being adapted, incorporated into other buildings. But the key point is that Isabella really cemented the form of the bailey, the bits within those huge 12th century walls. So 
one historian has said that Isabella was commissioned so much building that the castle must have been basically a building site for much of the time that she was there. And we know that, you know, Carisbrook is famous as a medieval castle. It's also famous for the artillery trace around it, those massive technological advances in a Tudor fortifications. But really, they wrap themselves around the medieval walls, which in turn wrap themselves around the Bailey, which I think if Isabella returned today, I think she could find her way around. Yes, yeah, just looking at a sort of distant image of the castle, it's sort of on this elevated position, isn't it? So it's sort of got this really strong wall around it, a curtain wall. And then you've got the uh, inner bailey, as you've been describing, with the That's tower right. and, and some right. other buildings inside. So, so yeah, there's plenty to, to explore and discover there, definitely. There is, yes. So we have a lot of roofed buildings, a lot of castles, you can imagine, are ruined. But we have the governor's lodgings, which sits on top of what we think would have been Isabella's Great Hall. There's the ruined areas that were her chambers, all sat within the early 12th century curtain wall. So Carisbrook is very striking from a distance, but everything that Isabella was doing, she retained those 12th century walls and she built within them. So at what stage in her life did Isabella become associated with Carisbrook Castle as the owner? Isabella was born Isabella de Redvers in July 1237. And it's at this time, at the moment of her birth, that she became associated with Carisbrook because it was the stronghold of the de Redvers family. So part of the vast estates in southern England, and it had already been that for over 100 years by the time of her birth. So it was a very well-established centre of her family's power. But that's not to say that we don't know whether she spent much time there at all, to be honest. And really, at birth, there was little expectation that the association with Carisbrook would continue. She was a woman, she was a girl of high status from a wealthy family. She was expected to marry and become part of the family of her future husband. So Isabella's early association with Carisbrook is it's kind of loose. It's a family connection. And we will certainly talk much later about how that connection was reconnected. But um, because Isabella had a brother, she wasn't expected to inherit Carisbrook. She, she was expected to move to the estates of her future husband. Uh-huh. OK, yes, we'll get on to that. So let's wind things back a bit and talk about Isabella's early years. What sort of family was she born into in 1237? Um, presumably the de Redvers had a, a lot of power, influence and land, didn't they, Sam? Absolutely. Yeah, that's at the absolute crux of all of this. So the de Redvers family were an aristocratic family. They'd been accumulating land, titles in England since at least the early 12th century. They held estates across the south of England. There's focus on Devon, Dorset, Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, of course. Isabella's father was Baldwin de Redvers. So he was the sixth Earl of Devon, also known as the Lord of the Isle of Wight. And Isabella's mother was Amice or Amicia, daughter of Gilbert de Clare, who was the Earl of Gloucester and Hertford, and Isabella Marshall. So a very strong pedigree indeed. So 
Isabella's father actually died when she was quite young. So when we think about her early years, she was she was about seven or eight years of age when he died. So she had a very strong pedigree, but it was actually her brother, who we've mentioned, also named Baldwin, like their father, who would ultimately become the seventh Earl of Devon, inheriting all of those family estates when he eventually came of age. Uh-huh. And this is all important information for what we're going to discuss as we go through. The kind of world that Isabella was also born into in 1237, who was on the throne? What sort of events were happening in England at the time? She was born in the long reign that was um, Henry III, in some ways, things had moved on from the troubled reign that was King John with his death in 1216. But in reality, King John's reign actually gave context to what was to come. So in 1282, there was a another yet another rebellion against the king, but this was put down. But as time went on, the king's support started to wane, and within a couple of decades, the whole kingdom was in full turmoil with barons openly rebelling against the king and ultimately um, resulting in what became known as the Second Barons' War, led by Simon de Montfort. It was rather a messy political period, to say the least. Yes, and we've covered both of those subjects. We've covered Ellen de Montfort, who was uh, Simon de Montfort's wife, in episode 101. That's a good listen. And the First Barons' War, which uh, started off with King John, that's in episode 72. So worth having listened to both of those as well, just to get a bit more context. So how did um, Isabella's family acquire so much land? In short, it came from backing the right side. So in 1100, Richard de Redfers, one of Isabella's ancestors, supported Henry I and so when he actually took the throne, he received a lot of power and a lot of land, which including a lot of land within Devon, as well as the Isle of Wight. So that's where the Carisbrook and um, the Isle of Wight come into it. But in what is the so-called anarchy of King Stephen's and Matilda's war, if you like, Baldwin supported Matilda and her son Henry, who later became Henry II. And it was in that that he received the title Earl of Devon, so receiving more land and titles just by supporting the right side. Ah, I see. Just really goes to show how much land and power and influence sort of work hand in hand, don't they really? Yes, very much so. So the more powerful you are, and as long as you bet on the right side, you should still stay rich, basically. So as the daughter of this rich nobleman, how attractive would Isabella have been to suitors in her youth, Sam? Well, she wasn't unique, but she certainly would have been a very attractive proposition. As we've said, she came from a family of wealth, of power, strong lineage, family connections, all of which were extremely important, particularly in a kind of difficult political world. So all that wealth, that power, well, some of that wealth and power came with her essentially as part of her marriage contract. So she would bring some of that to her future husband. And that, of course, made her very attractive. And who did she marry? What did this uh, suitor bring to the table himself? So at the age of about 11 or 12, uh, 1248, Isabella married a guy called William de Fors. He was the Count of Ormal. William had some continental ancestry, but the name de Fors and the title of Ormal eventually become anglicised over time. So that's where we see de Fors becoming de Fortibus 
and Omar later becoming Albemarle. And these variations are actually used by both William and Isabella in their actual lifetimes. So we can say that on marriage, Isabella became Isabella de Fortibus, the Countess of Ormale. William de Fortibus, her husband, his father was also William. He had been a notable political figure. He was present at the signing of Magna Carta. He'd rebelled against the crown on multiple occasions. But the comparison between Isabella's William and her father is perhaps not a a good one. Some historians have uh, said that the younger William was the least interesting of his line. So (laughs) there's not actually a lot to say about him particularly. But um, William's father had already died when they got married. So William came with the defortibus lands that were located in the north of England. These were focused on three locations. So Cockermouth in Cumbria, Skipton, in North Yorkshire and Skipsey in East Yorkshire. And the site of the last of those, of Skipsey Castle, is now cared for by English Heritage. It had been the administrative centre for the de Fortibus family for, since the early 12th century, for over 100 years. They, they were the Lords of Holderness. But by the time William and Isabella married, their centre had moved to a a very small place called Burstwick, which sits just north of the Humber estuary near Hull. And this site is now on private land, but you can see how large it was if you visit. It certainly was a large residence, but I don't think it would have compared in any way to Carisbrook Castle. No. So um, that's an interesting geographical combination then, isn't it? That he's got all the northern lands right up to almost the border of Scotland, isn't he? And she's got most of the lands in the south. So that's an interesting uh, situation. Well, she's she's not bringing the lands with her. So the de Redvers lands, much of them have gone to her brother. She will have brought some, potentially, as her dower. But as we said earlier, she she sort of said goodbye to the de Redvers lands. She becomes part of this de Fortibus family and inhabits Burstwick with William. Ah, okay. And I'm slightly teasing ahead, aren't I, really? These lands do come back, don't they? That's right, yeah. So as this couple, this new couple, she's sort of become a a, a new version of herself through this marriage in a way, in terms of what she owns and who she's with. Did the couple have children together? Yeah, they did. So she's very young when she moves up to these northern estates. We know that they had six children. John, Terran, Thomas, William, and two daughters, Avis and Aveline. But unfortunately, after only 12 years of marriage, William died in northern France. So Isabella becomes a young widow in her, just in her mid-twenties. And do we know what William died of? He died in northern France, and that unfortunately is all we know. I mean, he was older than Isabella, So um, he'd been married previously, so it it may have been nothing suspicious. may have been natural causes. It could have been an illness. Yeah, just don't know. Okay. This obviously was a bit of a tragedy for her then, but I presume then she would have acquired some titles and lands upon William's death. Is that right? So it's, I mean, widowhood in the 13th century was not unusual with the life expectancies and kind of the dangers of life in the 13th century. So all of her children, all of William and Isabella's children were still underage when he died, when William died. So unfortunately, most of the lands had to go to the crown. 
So until the eldest son was able to succeed to the estates, they kind of went out of the family's control. The exception to this, and again, following the custom of the time, was that Isabella as a widow would keep what essentially would be about a third of her husband's estate. So it's interesting to think that in widowhood, women would actually take on more autonomy and more power than they ever had had in marriage. So Isabella, in this instance, held a third of the Holdness estates, half the barony of Cockmouth and the honour and the castle in Skipton. She also was granted the rights to retain her younger son's living with her and she also got to stay at Burstwick so she stayed living there with her mother Amicia and was actually able to buy back the control of the rest of Holderness so the area immediately surrounding her was under the control of herself and her mother so they they were able to kind of effectively rule that together for a number of years living at Burstwick with the younger defaultibus children as I said widowhood was providing them with an opportunity, really. They had a level of independence that in other parts of what we would call the female life cycle just didn't exist. So this was probably quite a good part of her life. Yes, and I suppose an income from those lands. Absolutely an income, yes, yes. So, And with land comes income, with income comes a level of freedom. And I find it interesting as well what you said about the fact that upon William's death, some of the lands would have gone back to the king. I suppose those lands were sort of almost lent out, out of loyalty, weren't they really? So I suppose the king was entitled to have them back in a way. Yeah, exactly that. So ultimately, all land power at this time was held from the king. So when there was no one to hold it, so a a male who was of age, it just went back and he could redistribute, distribute it as he as he saw fit. So yes, until, you know, in theory, Isabella's eldest son came of age, she had lost that land, but she did hold on to some. Yes, interesting. And I suppose this is something that I haven't really thought about before, that um once you've given land and you've given a title, you then have control over that person as the monarch, don't you? So actually, the handing out of yeah, titles is... It's, re- it's a hierarchy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a hierarchy. Whilst the aristocracy appear to be at the top of this hierarchy in medieval England, you know, they managed vast estates, vast wealth that meant that they basically provided for many families, people within their estates. All of that wealth and power really was derived from the king. Now, I also understand that Isabella, as well as losing her husband, lost a brother. This furthered her inheritance, did it not? And what can you tell us about that, Sam? Yes. Well, we're finally getting to the defining moment of Isabella's life. So everything that came before really, I hope we've contextualized Isabella's life but it was it was kind of practice for what was coming in the rest of her life and it's the reason that she's worthy of her own podcast really so marriage at a young age children widowhood it was all quite common for women in the 13th century to experience these things and yeah we've talked a lot about her background but the death of Baldwin her brother who died in 1262 without any direct heirs meant that 
well, no direct male heirs, I should say, meant that Isabella inherited the de Redvers' titles and estates. There was no other brother. Baldwin died without children. So they came to Isabella. And this is what reinstates her connection to Carisbrook Castle. In her own right, she becomes the eighth Countess of Devon. So she begins styling herself the Countess of Devon and Ormal. So she's got these two titles. In addition to being Lady of the Isle, of course, that's the Isle of Wight. And from all of that land that she now owned, it was spread across eight counties. She was now one of the richest heiresses in the country one of the richest individuals in the country, we should say. And it was actually Carisbrook Castle that she chose ultimately as the centre of her estates. So this takes us all the way back to where we began, essentially. So she re-inherits her, ans- her ancestral lens that began with her father, effectively. She inherits what she would have been very unlikely to, to ever have expected to have inherited. She had a brother men inherited from men throughout the medieval period. Yeah, without this unexpected turn of events of Baldwin dying without a male heir, Isabella was now in line. It's, um, and it makes her incredibly rich, incredibly powerful. Yes, and I'm sensing perhaps a, a threat to His Majesty. Did having so much property mean that Isabella was powerful or vulnerable, Theron? Yeah, you would think being rich with a constant flow of money coming into the coffers would make you, making you wealthy, would make you actually powerful. And to a large extent, it would if you were a man. But as a woman, particularly as she was a widow, there is definitely a vulnerability side of things because there were several interested suitors, I'm sure, who would, would like her hand in marriage because with her came lots of land. And we know that at least two um, actually acquired the rights to Isabella's remarriage. Uh, Okay. I I love this phrase of acquired the rights. It sounds like intellectual property law. How does one acquire the right to someone's hand? Indeed. Um, So this was a right of particularly of the king for, for Isabella because she was a tenant in chief. So by that, I mean tenant in chief, she held land directly from the king. And as her lord, the king could grant whether she could remarry or not. And the permission was usually granted by the payment of a a sum of money, normally referred to as a fine. The Magna Carta of King John's reign, as well as some of the later versions of the later versions of Henry III's reign, stated that a widow could not be forced to remarry. Practice, however, was a little bit more blurred, to say the least. Bit of a grey area. So it's kind of like she had to agree really, to one of these suitors? Or could she reject both? Well, she tried to, at least. So in 1264, um, following the the success of the rebellion against the king, Simon de Montfort's son, also known as Simon de Montfort, usefully, acquired the rights to Isabella's remarriage. But did she remarry? No. But it's recorded that Simon de Montfort was chasing her around the country with an armed guard. So what did she do? She tried to hide in Bremer Priory in Hampshire, but it seems that the prior let slip of where the whereabouts of her whereabouts to Simon, and then she's reportedly bribed the prior to let her escape. And yeah, she made her way westwards 
pursued by Simon, but she found refuge in Wales. And then eventually Simon de Montfort gave up chase, particularly as his time was taken up by the war elsewhere. But it all came to a, a rather quick end because his forces were routed in a surprise attack in the mid-1265. Mid and his father and older brother um, were also killed in the Battle of Esham and the heads were put on a pike nicely. Simon didn't really want the same fate, so he ultimately fled to France. So he's now out of the picture. And that was in the Second Baron's War, is that right? Yeah, this was all in Second Baron's War, right. yeah. Okay, which is in the Ellen de Montfort podcast, isn't it? Yes. So that's bringing really is the, clo the closing elements of the Second Baron's War is all the death and gore and the pikes and things like that. However, that was not the end of the attempts on Isabella's remarriage. Because in 1268, um, her marriage was now granted to Henry III's son, Edmund, Earl of Lancaster, also sometimes known as Crouchback, or Edmund Crouchback. Um, not because he was a hunchback, but literally was a derivative of having a cross on his back, embroidered on, his, um, on, on fabric. But Isabella also didn't marry him. But what did happen, however, Edmund actually married her daughter, Aveline, um, in 1269. It's not really recorded how this transition from Isabella to Aveline occurred, but it, it, that's what happened. But within a year of the marriage, Aveline died without issue. And that was a bit of a problem because the idea, probably in the royal point of view, is as Aveline was now the only surviving heir of Isabella, so when Isabella um, died, the land would all revert to Aveline and then through being married to Edmund, i.e. the son of Henry III, it would now be in royal hands. But as Aveline died, that hope of Isabella's hand and landing in the crown's um, lap um, ultimately failed, alas. Okay. It's a real complicated sort of power grab, isn't it, by the, the king via, via proxies? Yeah, yeah, they're trying to grab it by stealth. Yes. But yes, a complicated attempt to gain power, basically. Yes, very How many so. suitors in total did Isabella have during this quite, uh, shall we say, this sort of chasing period? As far as we're aware, it was only two, but that was probably enough for her. And how long did it take for her to sort of to keep rebuffing these advances? Because she was travelling quite a lot, wasn't she? So Yeah, yeah she would have she would been tra travelling around... But after um, 12, 1269, there doesn't seem to have been another, another attempt. But interestingly, it, it did seem that she didn't actually buy the right to her own marriage, which is possible. Some other people did do that. But why Isabella did it, I have absolutely no idea. But it may have been the king refused to accept that as an option. I'm getting a sense then, Theron, that um, Isabella has done quite well to fend off these advances and that actually being on an island on the Isle of Wight in Carisbrook Castle, a fortified property, was a great way to retreat from unwanted advances. Would that be right? Oh, yeah, I think you could certainly argue that. Had Simon de Montfort actually been more successful later on in, in the war, I don't know if she would have been able to fend off that one or not, but certainly she was out of harm's way in the immediate with Carisbrook Castle. 
even her, um, her ancestor Boulder and Redford, he retired to the Carisbrook Castle away from all the warfare that was on the, going on the mainland. And he used Carisbrook Castle as a base himself to get away from everything else. Mm. So with Carisbrook as her base, what did she do from here? And how did she alter the property and enhance it? Um, I think it's probably the other question you could ask is, what didn't she do to Carisbrook? So as um, Sam said earlier, it did essentially become a one large building project. So I mentioned earlier that the Curtain Wall was built by Baldwin de Redford's, um, her great-great-grandfather, and that became the frame of a major rebuilding of the interior. And this was overtaken many for many years but it seems virtually every building within the castle was either redesigned, rebuilt, or at least altered while she held the castle. But I won't go by blow by blow account because we would literally be here forever. So I'll just highlight a couple of the elements. So the Great Hall, which was, if you like, is the heart of, of a castle where fealty was pledged, where meals were had, where court was taking place. That was likely to have been built or at least heavily altered and it was described as being above an undercroft with four chambers. At one end of this, a very large kitchen and in modern money, um, 40 metres by about nine metres was constructed with an adjacent salting house and then there was a covered walkway to the Great Hall. And then at the other end of the hall was, a, if you like, a private chapel, the Chapel of St Peter, which was built in 1270. And this is quite a typical setup of having a hall and a chapel, but also a chamber all in close proximity for the Lord to use, um, in this case, a lady, into their own, um, to own ends. But it wasn't just um, buildings that she had actually constructed. She also had gardens built. In her time, there was at least two called herbariums or enclosed gardens, one of which had a sundial and a water feature, perhaps a fountain. She had a hawk muse constructed because she did go out to Parkhurst Forest on the other side of the valley for hunting. Also, there was a fish tank within to keep um, live fish in as well, to keep them nice and fresh. And then also the gatehouse was rebuilt, which can be partially visible today behind what is now the 14th century frontage with its big drum towers. But one construction I will highlight is Isabella's great chamber on the North Curtain Wall. This was included two glazed seating windows, and we know windows were glazed around 1273, with more in the 1290s. And glass was ex- incredibly extravagant, really, really expensive, and quite a rare commodity, particularly on the scale of these windows. And they were, generally speaking, utilised only by royalty in this period. But the windows, if you like, were a real statement of power and architectural style, because anybody coming up to the castle from the village would have actually seen these windows overlooking um, where they are. So it's very much, I am here, this is my castle, I'm here to stay. Yeah, so a real statement there. So did she encounter any further challenges to her wealth and land ownership whilst living at Carisbrook Castle, Theron? She did, but not in the same, or in the way, same way as people trying to get her hand in marriage. There was some undone business, if you like. So in 1278, um, the king claimed an unpaid debt up in the north. So when Isabella and her mum brought the remaining bits of Holderness estate, 
Um, it did come with a lot of money, but it does seem that it wasn't actually properly paid for. So the king came to reclaim it and took the income for all the will sales of the Holderness estate, and also 5,150 sheep were taken and sold, a huge, a huge amount. So this was a large portion of her income that was lost, and it did take a few years to recover that. And as a result, there seems to be a little bit of a lull in the building work at Carrowsbrook Castle. And another issue that she faced is that occasionally the Isle of Wight, with its castle, was temporarily actually taken away from her when there was deemed as a great threat by the king, so threat of invasion. But in each time, in this case, it was actually given back and it was only for short periods of time. And the previous incident that you described with the sheep disappearing, was that an attempt to weaken her? I don't know if it was in that sense. Uh, so there probably was, um, I don't know what the king thought of her, but she probably was a bit of a fawn on her side because yeah, she did like her litigation and sometimes it was against the king. So that probably didn't help matters in the way he dealt with it. So I don't know if it was that way, but it was certainly he had the right to do so because there was uh, money to be paid. Overall though, Sam... What kind of income did Isabella de Fortibus derive from her lands while she was based on the Isle of Wight? Because she still had lands up in the north of England, didn't she? She did, yeah. I mean, land is the continued source of her wealth. And as Theron was just talking about, it was sheep, it was wool, it was grazing rights that um, brought her a lot of her income. We've actually got some really good estate records, accounts of Isabella's income. So we know where the money was coming from, and it is largely from land use. So when we see a bad trading year, if we see animal disease, so if the sheep are getting unwell, or if there's a drop in the volume of wool that's being produced, this directly impacts Isabella's income. And we amazingly, these records still exist. So we have a really detailed account of where she was getting her money from. Again, land use where during the 13th century there were a lot of newly established boroughs. So kind of new towns were being established. And the reason that they could bring money for the Lord or Lady was that they would basically take tolls or taxes on the trade that was derived from these. So both in Holderness and on the Isle of Wight, Isabella had interests in sea trade towns, so towns that were ports. And so a lot of money was flowing into her hands through these new towns. What's really incredible is that it's estimated that towards the end of her life, her annual income totaled somewhere around £2,500 a year. And this would be about the purchasing power of just under about £2 million income annually today. So a huge, huge amount of money. These days, of course, people with large sums of money do engage in philanthropy. Uh, Was she one of those people who... Did that in her time? Yeah, it's a really tricky word, philanthropy, to to apply to the 13th century. It probably doesn't apply in the way that we think of it today. So certainly Isabella as um, Lady of the Isle, as a countess, would have engaged in kind of charitable giving, I suppose, giving alms to the poor, maybe. And as I discussed earlier, she, she would have managed a household structure to manage her estates that kind of created a hierarchy that relied on her status, but also relied on loyalty and protection. So in a way, her wealth 
protected an awful lot of people, probably hundreds of people and families across her estates, across across the country. As a woman of high status, religious patronage also came into play. So for both kind of religious purposes, but also because she was a land landlord, landholder. So she needed to establish good neighborly relations with religious houses that also owned a lot of land. So we can see this as kind of philanthropy in a way. She would give money to established monastic properties. So for example, Thornton Abbey in North Lincolnshire um, and Kirkham Priory, both of which are English heritage properties, both had defaultibus connections and we know that she financially supported those. On the Isle of Wight, we've got Quar Abbey, where actually <laughs> Isabella displayed perhaps some of her other qualities and was slightly litigious, as Theron said. Having land brought you into dispute with your neighbours occasionally. So whilst she could have been very generous in her philanthropy, let's call it, she was also not averse to taking up a legal fight as well when her properties were threatened. Yeah, there's no shortage of those. Yes. And of course, one of the key points of our story is that she was, I believe, the last owner of the Isle of Wight and also the last, I suppose, female owner of the Isle of Wight. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Theron's mentioned that she was the tenant in chief and I think we've discussed how she held the land from the king. So being the owner is a bit of a tricky word, but yeah, she can absolutely be described as the last individual to own much of the Isle of Wight. And certainly she was the last of the de Redvers line. She died without direct heirs and eventually her estates became crown land. So she was the last individual, the last woman to fully control Carisbrook Castle and the Isle of Wight. She actually lived a really long life, um, to the age of about 56. Um, She died in November 1293. And it's kind of tragic, really, that she'd worked so hard and gathered by inheritance, by luck in some instances, but she'd worked very hard to protect her land and amass her wealth and had nobody essentially that she wanted to give it to on on her death. And this is the point at which the Crown finally (laughs) convinces her to sign over her lands, including Carisbrook Castle. So in 1293, King Edward I, he gets his hands on the lands. And was that all above board then? Because I believe it was all, she was pretty much on her deathbed when she had to sign it. It's a very good question. Yeah. And certainly for years after her death, it was questioned. She, of course, she did have heirs. So you could track within the family tree back to other people who had claims to her estate. And there were claims brought by people who were not actually even related. So there was a a lot of uh, controversy in the years that followed her death over this claim that she had signed it. But she signed it, whether that was willingly or not. She did sign over her lands to the Crown. Yes, and I suppose, ultimately, if all the land in the kingdom belongs to the monarch anyway, then you're just the tenant anyway, ultimately, until your death or, or until you pass it on to your heirs. Yeah, although I think it's worth saying that the Crown wanted direct control of Carisbrook and her lands, 
whilst they had sort of indirect control through their ability to control what Isabella did, who she married, all of that kind of thing, they didn't have the money going directly into the Crown estate. By getting Carisbrook from Isabella, they not only took her lands, her wealth, her income directly, but they also had this incredibly strategically important castle, this stronghold. And as we said right at the start of the podcast, this was strategically important for the whole nation. The Isle of Wight through, throughout the centuries has always been seen as a potential vulnerability. It's a really good place that you, if you wanted to invade England, you would take the island, you could establish your army there, and then you could use it to take the rest of the country. So Carisbrook at the medieval period was the site that the crown needed to be able to control that entry point and to control the security of the country, as well as all the wealth that it would bring. Fearon, how does the story of Isabella de Fortibus ultimately end? Is she buried on the island? No, no, she's not. She's she's buried at Bremer Priory in um, what we mentioned earlier, um, when she was um, trying to run away from Simon de Montfort the Younger in Hampshire. Yeah, I, uh, so it's a um, sort of a slight different time to return there, as it were, or different times, should I say? And I would love to say that you could come go and say hello to her by visiting her tomb. This, however, is not actually possible, as during the Reformation um, in the Tudor period, where many of the monastic houses, including Bremer, were closed, stripped of their materials and pulled down, Bremer also went this way. And so this, in, in short, means that Isabella's grave has been lost. So we just know she was buried somewhere in that area. Um, and there's a, a new building built on top now. OK, so if you can't visit Isabella's grave directly and, 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 and precisely, can you at least walk through Isabella's footsteps at Carisbrook Castle, Sam? I think we can safely say that you can. Yeah, I think Carisbrook Castle is the place that if Isabella was going to call anywhere home, I think this would be it. She spent some 30 years of her life there. It's what makes her story so special. It was the centre of her vast estates, as we've discussed. She took on something that was already important to her ancestors, ancestors and she developed it even further into this kind of real display of power and wealth and status. And we mustn't forget that she's a it's a woman doing this. So I like to call her a castle builder, actually. So despite the fact that those huge curtain walls and the shell keep were not built by Isabella, the amount of construction she did just means that she was a castle builder in all but name. I like to call her that. So if our listeners can visit, you know, you can walk in her footsteps, you can see what Isabella created there. And as Theron has already mentioned, there's actually one piece of Carisbrook Castle that I'm particularly fond of, and that is the window. Those glazed windows, we call one of them the most complete. We call that Isabella's window. It's a really beautiful 13th century carved stone window opening with a wonderful window seat. So it's very picturesque. And you can now, even now, step up that window seat, step out and look out through the curtain wall across. You're looking out through the trees towards Newport. And ultimately, you, you would be looking out towards the mainland. That's really, you get very close to Isabella there. We know that that was in her great chamber. So 
one of the most private protected spaces that she had within her castle and as Theron said it's the height of luxury and status and power and wealth at this time so yeah Carisbrook is the place to walk in her footsteps and understand how a woman could control a medieval castle which is not always the way that we understand castles today and is Isabella's window original glazing or has it been reglazed since her time so there's no glazing in it at the moment. We know it was glazed through records and I believe through archaeology. Glass has been found on the site, but not next to the window. But you can look through it. It's, it's slightly restored. There's no glass in it now, but I think it gives you a real sense of how luxurious that great chamber would have been. So lastly, for both of you, What does Isabella's story teach us about power, politics and families in 13th century England? Sam, do you want to start us off? Yeah, well, I think I've covered a little bit of it. I mean, that's what the window means for me, really. Um, Isabella's story, a lot of it is not unique to women in the 13th century, particularly high status women. So marriage, children, widowhood, that's a fairly common cycle, but it does teach us about those important things about power, politics, families, how that played out in 13th century England, particularly amongst the aristocratic class. What makes Isabella worthy of a podcast is that she became an almost unique character, almost an independent woman, perhaps as independent as you could be, one of the richest individuals. So it shows you how those interactions of power, politics and families could play out in a woman's favour, actually, in an unusual turn of events. And she clung on to that power and maintained that independence through holding on to the lands and and not signing away her hand in marriage and signing away her lands in marriage as well. So I think that's what makes her such a fantastic character in history for, you know, there's a lot that we, we've only touched on the highlights today. I hope we've managed to give a kind of sense of her character. She was incredibly litigious. She fought for her lands. She resolutely remained a widow, didn't remarry when every so- societal expectation was that she would. So she's an incredible individual in unusual circumstances, certainly. What's your final thought as well, Theron, on Isabella's position in in history in this particular century with everything that was going on at the time? I would essentially echo what Sam has said. So in many ways, she is very typical, but at the same time, she is very atypical. She is or certainly was a force to be reckoned with. And you can certainly see that through the court records. I think every any moment in time, there was at least one court case going on at any one time, sometimes with churches, sometimes with royalty, sometimes with her own mother, amongst many, many other people besides. And so because of that, she was certainly sort of, as you already have said, holding on to the power that she she wanted to keep hold of. I would recommend people to visit Carisbrook Castle to actually get a feel um, for what she actually built. But also, if you can, um, read up on about her. She is a fantastic figure to look out for because if you understand her, um, you understand a lot of aspects of the period from a, a feminine point of view.
You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be taking a deep dive into the history of England in stinking sewage. Peveril Castle in Derbyshire, there is a latrine shaft hanging off a cliff face. You can see them sometimes on some medieval city walls as well, of a latrine, the weights discharging down the side of the walls. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>